0: All right, well, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 and the first six verses is what we will consider this evening. Exodus 32, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read to verse 6. I'm reading from the New King James Version. This is the living and active word of our Lord. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain... The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said, Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. When they said, Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So far the reading of God's word, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the portions of your word that we have already been blessed by this evening. We thank you, Father, that we could have it in our hands, that we could open it this evening. We know that we have brothers and sisters around the world that don't have the same privilege that we do. Forgive us for taking it for granted. We Thank you, Father, for this portion that we have to consider this evening. We ask that your spirit would be upon me as I bring forth your word, that your spirit would be upon every soul here from youngest to oldest, that we would receive what is of you, that we would understand what it is you'd have us to understand, that we would grow thereby to your glory. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, let's begin by first turning back to chapter 20 of Exodus, the chapter that... If there is a chapter in Exodus we're most familiar with, it's probably that one, since um, that is where we find the Ten Commandments, one of the two places. But let's turn back there and see what these same idolatrous people had both experienced and heard not many days prior to what we just read. So in verses 1 through 17, we have the moral law of God as it's summarized in the Ten Commandments and then picking up at verse 18. Of Exodus chapter 20. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. So just weeks before what we read in Exodus 32, that's what those same people, they, that's what they experienced. That's what they heard while at the foot of Mount Sinai. I now turn forward a couple chapters from there to Exodus chapter 24, where we'll be reminded of what they then said by way of promise to the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of Exodus 24. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. All right. So not only did the people as a whole promise to do all that God had commanded them, even by way of covenant, but seventy of the elders, representing all of Israel, beheld God's presence in a manner that was no doubt astonishing talk about a heavenly vision, what we're told here in verse 10 is in so many ways, I think, beyond our, our ability really to comprehend due to its magnificence. And magnificence, I'm sure that all 70 of those elders, again, beheld and then told the people about as best as they could. All right, Then, then back to Exodus 32, in light of what we just went over, in light of everything else that God had done for his covenant people, like raising a mediator who would be faithful as their guide and prophet, demonstrating great compassion and mercy to them, even as they were brought out of of Egypt, even though they were just as sinful as the Egyptians, bringing judgment on Egypt while at the same time keeping them from experiencing the worst judgment due to the Passover lamb. In all of those ways and others like them, God had given to Israel undeserved blessing after undeserved blessing And yet, what we're told here in Exodus 32, 1 through 6 was their response. Moses had entered the cloud near the top of the mountain to receive further instructions from the Lord. He was being told what the tabernacle should consist of, um, how to properly worship him within its bounds. And then just as his time before Yahweh was coming to an end, as the Lord was ready to send him back down with with the law on two tablets, The people who had been waiting grew impatient to the point that they were ready to give up on God as he truly was, and instead they sought to fashion an image of God of their own liking. It's really an amazing chapter to be sure, and it gives us a striking account of what is in the heart of man, a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It also points us to our need of Jesus Christ, our need of the gospel. And I was just mentioning uh, a few minutes ago, we read places like this. We read the Old Testament this morning at, at our church at Trinity Covenant. We were reading through 1 Samuel 8 where where the people want a king, and God says, give them a king, but tell them what the king is going to be like. And so Samuel tells them what the king is going to be like. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your livestock. And the people said, no, we want a king. <laughs> you, read, you read that, and you think these people were so dumb they were so sinful so glad we're not like that that's what we are right that's that's what we're like and so again a good reminder of what's in our heart and what we need when it comes to where to Jesus Christ and God's way of salvation so i'm going to make a few general observations and then uh, i'll have seven points of personal application first then we're told that when the people saw that Moses delayed his coming down that they then gathered themselves together unto Aaron. And the original Hebrew for gathered themselves together, I believe that's one word in the Hebrew, is what is used to describe gathering people together for religious practices or religious purposes, which is obviously what they had in mind. So they went to Aaron and they said to him, come, or if you have the King James Version, they said, up, make us gods that shall go before us, literally, which we shall have before our face or be in our presence since that's what they were really after. They wanted a God who wasn't up on a mountain. They wanted a God that was right there in front of them physically, even though as we, again, read in chapter 20, God made it very clear, do not make to yourselves gods of gold and silver. And yet that's just what they were doing directly already, directly disobeying the commandments of God that they said that they would keep. Then too the people told Aaron, as for this man Moses, The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him, which is really just another way of saying two things. First is we don't really care about him anymore. Uh, We haven't seen him or heard from him in about 40 days, and so we're ready to move on to something better, someone better. And then second, it's also a revelation of sorts of how they pictured God. They pictured him as Moses, as a mere creature rather than the almighty creator, since they said, for this man. That brought us up out of Egypt. So again, after they experienced all that they had by being brought out of Egypt, not to mention the magnificence of God that they could still behold, looking up on the mountain, I'm sure, they still related God to themselves. And since Moses was out of their sight, they figured let's get on to something better, something, again, that we can manipulate to our own liking. That's the idea. Well, then in verse 2, Aaron instructed them to break off the golden earrings which they and their family members were wearing so that he could then use them to make a god that they were asking for. Three things that we should take note of there. First was, what was the origin of those golden earrings? Or in other words, where did the people of Israel get those? Well, if you remember, they got them from the spoil of the Egyptians that God providentially and sovereignly brought about. He promised Kind of a strange promise, of course, it came true. He promised them that as they came out of Egypt, they would be given gifts from their former captives. And, of course, those former gifts were ultimately to be used in the building of the of the tabernacle and the things in it. But instead, they make a a golden calf, which obviously just highlights their sinfulness. Second, in the original Hebrew form of the word that we have translated to break off, that 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 break off it, it signifies an intensity of action. It's it's something that something it's some it's an action that was done feverishly, hurriedly, not not casually at all. All to say that it was as though the people could not wait. They couldn't wait to get going with this new plan that they had. It wasn't like you know when you get to it a couple days from now. Give me your gold. Let's do it right now. Let's get going with it. And then third, note that it was Aaron. It was Aaron. Of all people who told them to do this. Now, perhaps he was thinking by asking such a request from them that he thought, well, they're not going to be willing to give up those things and then I won't have to proceed any further. At least that's what some people think. But listen to how Matthew Henry commented on Aaron's actions, which I think are likely true. He wrote, Is this Aaron? the saint of the Lord, the brother of Moses, his prophet who could speak so well and yet speaks not one word against this idolatry? Is this Aaron who had not only seen but had been employed in summoning the plagues of Egypt and judgments executed upon the gods of the Egyptians and yet himself copying the same idols? Is this Aaron who had been with Moses in the mount before God and knew that there was no manner of similitude seen there by which they could make an image? Is this Aaron who was entrusted with the care of the people in in Moses' absence? Is he the one abiding and abetting in this rebellion against the Lord? How is it possible that he should ever do such a sinful thing? And then this was his concluding remark God left him to himself to teach us what the best of men are when are when they are so left, that we may cease from man and that he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Good lesson there, to be sure. Great lesson for every one of us to realize that if even Aaron, of all people, could so quickly fall into the sin of gross idolatry, so could we. Plus, it also reminds us that Aaron, just like us, needed a righteousness outside of himself. He needed an alien righteousness, right? His righteousness was not going to cut. Neither was Moses. Neither was anyone. We need the righteousness of Christ. Well, then in verse 4, we're told that the people did feverishly break off their golden earrings. They brought them to Aaron, who then fashioned them probably around a wooden frame that was then overlaid with the melted gold into what looked like a molded, or again, if you have the King James, a molten calf, actually a young bull, which signified strength and fertility. Going back even before Egypt, the patriarchs had no doubt seen what the gods, little g, of their neighbors had worshipped what they looked like. Plus, while in Egypt, their fertility god Baal was fashioned into a young bull, all of which left a lasting imprint on their minds. But so look again at what Aaron then said to the people after he made it. This is your God, O Israel, or here is your Elohim, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And isn't that remarkably sinful? It is, and... You know what Aaron was doing in verse 4? He was presenting the people, the covenant people of God, with a confession of faith. It's really what he was doing. It's an Aaronic and moronic confession of faith, uh, we might call it, wherein it states that this thing, this man-made, human-fashioned hunk of metal in the shape of a young bull, is what led the people out of bondage, out of the place where, where sin reigned where there was deliverance. Again, it's a confession. It's a confession of faith. It's not much of a confession to be sure, but then again, it wasn't much of a God either, since in reality it just came into existence a few hours before he said that, and it was soon to go out of existence. But again, what remarkable sinfulness we are reminded of the vanity, the sheer worthlessness of any and all things, that are put in the place or sought to be put into the place of the only one worthy of our worship. Well, then in verse 5, in addition to his worthless confession, Aaron also gives the people a call to worship, wherein he tells everyone tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, literally to Yahweh, which means that they wanted to keep the name of God. They wanted to keep something, some part of God, Let's not abandon them altogether. Let's give some form of civility, as it were, or some form of reverence in that way. But they also, again, wanted to bring God down to their level so that they could control him. They didn't want a sovereign God who preserves and governs all their creature, all his creatures and all their actions. They wanted it more like they would control him. Then lastly, in verse 6, we're told that the people rose up early on the next day, obviously excited or the worship of this God of their own making. When it says that they ate and drank and rose up to play, it's very likely, a lot of commentators state this, that that probably involves some sexual sins. Since again, that was what was commonly practiced when it came to the Canaanites and the Egyptians worshiping a calf-like idol. Uh, Sexual activity done before a fertility God was a means of stirring up the God or gods, making them happy so that the, woman would be, the women would become pregnant and the, the fields would then yield good crops. All told, it was probably a worse sight than we could even imagine. Right? I, mean, we, I think we could probably picture a little bit in our minds, I think, how degrading this was, how vulgar, how terrible. What are these people doing? How could those people be that dumb? A few weeks before, they were, they were in the presence of God. Their elders came down and told them this. Look, there's Mount Sinai. Look up there. Look what's going on up there. And this is what they're doing, but it's probably worse than we could even imagine, right? Filled with simple actions from people that had absolutely every reason and every cause to wait upon Moses to come down from the mountain with the word of the one who truly did bring them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who continued to bless and demonstrate his goodness to them, but instead, again, they grew impatient. They decided that they knew what was best, even though it was contrary to the word of God that they heard and, again, covenantally agreed to obey. All right, well, so let's think now of seven ways in which we can, and I think we should, apply this passage to our own lives. First, what was the reason, again, that led the people to tell Aaron to build them a new God? In many ways, it was their impatience. According to their timetable, according to their timetable, Moses should have returned. And so when he did not, it was time to move on to something else. And they figured they were wise enough to know what that something else was. But now listen again to some words from Matthew Henry and see if it isn't that we might be tempted to do the same thing concerning our mediator, Jesus Christ. He wrote, misinterpretations of our Redeemer's delays are the occasion of a great deal of wickedness. Our Lord has gone up to be in the presence of God for us. The heavens now conceal him from our sight so that we might live, how? By faith. There has been a long time. I'm sorry, there he has been a long time. There he still is. Hence, believers suggest they know not what has become of him, and ask, "Where is the promise of his coming?" As if because he has not come yet, he would never come. Weariness in waiting betrays us to a great many temptations, but he must be waited for, though he tarry. And again, we can think, "Oh, those those Israelites! I I can't believe they would do that." You know, we hear we hear in numerous places in Scripture. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Again, we're going through Revelation at Trinity Covenant Reform. This morning we were in the Church of Philadelphia. And one thing Jesus said to the faithful church in Philadelphia, behold, I'm coming quickly. You think he said that to the church in Philadelphia, maybe around 100 A.D. What does he mean he's coming quickly? Coming in his perfect time. And we don't know what that is. It's not for us to, to indulge in sin. It's for us to wait upon him in a holy manner. Well, again, those are good words from Matthew Henry since we can think on those things in that way. Of course, the reality is he is coming again. We don't know when, but we are to wait in faithfulness. Second, while reading this, I wondered more than once how the whole sinful idea of fashioning a new God ever got started. And, of course, I don't know, but probably someone was sitting in their tent and thought, you know what, I have a good idea. Moses has been up there a long time. Let's build something that's more like what we can manipulate. So they went over to the next tent over, and they told them, and then they went over and told their friend, and and then they told their friends, and before long, as sin often does, everybody got stirred up, and and it spread through the camp like wildfire. It was the popular vote of just about every soul there. Again, that's how sin so often starts, even in our own hearts. Right, one small voice. We can be sure. Well, I'm done with that sin. Lord, forgive me for that sin. For having, forgive me for having my mind in the gutter for that half hour. I'm done with that. I'm not doing that anymore. Five minutes later, just a little twinkle of thought comes up. Oh, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe that. And then, and then that produces another one, and we don't stop it. And and there it goes. And I don't know how it, how that. Idea, let's make a golden calf started, probably in a small way, and spread like wildfire. That's how, again, sinful actions go. As the old saying goes, sin eventually costs us more than we want to pay, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and takes us farther than we want to go. Third, I read an article a while back titled, Worshiping a Golden Calf on Sunday is Relatively Easy. That was the title of the article, and the article of that. The author of that article wrote that because none of us are bystanders to idol worship, we need to be aware of idolatry's subtle means of drawing us in. And of course, be, be attuned to that, even when we would think, well, okay, I get that sometimes. the Again, the article is about when we're worshiping together. And so, for example, he wrote how we need to be sure that we're not like those who fill the pews in order to exalt the rhetorical skills of the preacher. Or that come to enjoy the spiritual exercises of our fellow worshippers, And I think by that he means, well, I really come just for the social aspect. You know, and, and social aspect is something. We like to fellowship, right? That's a good thing. But you know what the number one question in ethics is? Why? The number one question in ethics, why? Why are you doing it? It's not so much that you're doing it. Why are you doing it? What's the motive behind it? What's your desire behind it? It's good to worship the Lord. Why are we there? Why do we come to worship him? Why do we open his word together? To glorify him, to worship him. He added, we we need to be sure that we tithe with the expectation, that we do not tithe with the expectation of return from heaven's slot machine, that we don't dress to impress that we don't serve and lead to compensate for the inadequacies of our hearts that only Christ can fill. In other words, we'll see what I'm doing. See, God must, God must love and accept me because you see all that I'm doing. Well, God loves and accepts you because of Christ. Because of that, we worship the Lord. Then he wrote in a profound sort of way how that the proclamation of the good news of Jesus and the extolling of his eternal excellencies is always an interruption, always a disruption to our idolatry since it brings the sword of the vision between where our, even our idolatrous hearts are set and where they ought to be. I must hearken to the gospel, since it is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all goodness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article, the principal article of all Christian doctrine, the gospel, that we should know it well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. And we might say that the people of Israel were involved in a worship war, worship the true God through the true mediator, Jesus Christ, of whom Moses was a type, or worship a God of their own making, an idol, and unfortunately, they chose the idol, and we have to be careful that we don't do the same thing in ways that we probably would never think of. Well, then fourth, still by way of application and thinking again about the feverish pitch, the passion that that accompanied Israel's desire to partake in their idolatry we need to do an evaluation of how passionate we are how how excited we are how much preparation we give to the things of this earth that so quickly fade away it can be the idols of our hearts with the bosom sins as the puritans called them as compared to the desire and passion and excitement we possess when it comes to the things of the lord like heeding his call to worship him fifth, and this is somewhat similar to what we just heard, was how it, uh, how is it again that Aaron could do what he did? How could 70 elders who had recently been before Yahweh do what they did, the rest of the multitude and so forth? Well, for the same reason that we could, because idolatry is an age-old strategy of the human heart. A heart, a mind without the gospel being poured forth, that feels vulnerable that feels needy, that feels out of control, that wants to be in control. And so fallen mankind's natural remedy is not the gospel. It's to choose an idol over God. I'm sure you've all heard Calvin's famous words that our hearts are idol factories, ready to bring one forth, whatever it may be. Some of you may be familiar with Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. I just got the catalog from P&R Publishing, and there's a, a new revised version of that book. It's one of my favorites. I commend it to you, When People Are Big and God is Small. But in that, he wrote, those people at the foot of Mount Sinai wanted nothing above themselves, including God. God, they thought, would not be able to keep pace with their desires. So they looked for blessing in satisfaction, in something they felt they could control. They wanted to do it their way rather than God's way. That is the height of rebellion. The people of Israel had never before seen a display of holiness like they saw at Sinai. Such holiness left them feeling vulnerable and exposed. They became aware of their own shame. To deal with this holy terror, they, f- they, they fled to the Christ, you know? To deal with this holy terror, their rebellious hearts hearts searched for a God that was tame, And the golden calf certainly was that. So it is today. In our unbelief, we oppose God and avoid him. And of course, the the real answer to our need is Jesus Christ. Six, think again about how quickly the people gave up on their true deliverer. God had just recently taken, taken them out of bondage had sovereignly brought them to a place of safety. He had just recently given them words of blessing. He was getting ready to give them further words of blessing through their mediator. They could see that. Again, they could look up on the mountain, and yet how quickly they became dull and forgetful hearers. But then I wonder how many of us heard a good word concerning Jesus Christ, even this morning, last week, and then hardly gave it, or the God that we heard in that, even a second thought. The great I am, the same God that we're reading about here, commands us to consider him. But isn't that our problem? We tend to be forgetful hearers. And I know, I mean, I, 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 I amaze myself sometimes in my own remarkable sinfulness. I preach the word, I preach it. And then sometimes a few days later, I have to really think hard about what I was preaching on. And that's me. And I know I used to be one of you, so to speak. I used to be a pew sitter. How often, how quickly we forget those things. And 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 I've I probably mentioned this before. I know I've only been here a couple times, but the enemy of our souls doesn't really care what it is. It can be something moral. It doesn't matter. Just distraction. Just we live. I think we tend to live our lives by distraction. And again, the enemy just loves that. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be morally upright. Just don't. Just don't truly meditate upon the good news of the gospel. Think on something else. That's what Israel was doing. And then lastly, if you continue reading through Exodus, you will find that in spite of the people's ongoing unfaithfulness, remarkably, God remained faithful to his covenant promises. Even Moses failed by sinning against God, resulting in him being unable to enter the promised land. But because God, through Christ, had given his word that he would not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax, both signs of of weakness, we can rest assured that even in our weakness, Jesus Christ is all the strength and the righteousness that we will ever need. And so like Moses, we rest our souls on him and we can know that we will then enter ultimately the ultimate promise of even the glory of the Lord's presence forever. Being that these words are written for our example according to scripture, and may we take them by way of example and be thankful for them and heed what God is telling us, putting away idolatry and seeking only to worship and bless the Lord. Let's come again before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you. Again, for your word to us, we thank you, Father, that you would teach us in many ways from many different areas of your word. We thank you, Father, that there's something to glean in every passage of your word. Some things are difficult to understand than others, even as Peter said about Paul's writings, but some things clearer. We thank you for the clarity here. We thank you, Father, for, for even as as difficult as it may be, as convicting as it may be to associate ourselves with the Israelites long ago, practicing idolatry, practically right before your glory, before your majesty. And yet, Father, we do the same. You've blessed us beyond measure, you've saved us, you've drawn us out of the place that we deserve, you've given us a place, brought us into a place of mercy You've delivered our souls, and the wrath to come, You've given us everything we need in Christ. You've given us faithful words. You've given us faithful commandments that are meant to be a blessing. And, Father, we receive them. We seek to obey them. And yet you know, Father, how many times we don't seek very well. We are forgetful hearers. We are not often doers of your word like we should be. Father, we confess that before you. We acknowledge it, even though you know it better than we do. We thank you that, that there is forgiveness for that sin. We ask, Father, that you would continue to sanctify us, that your spirit would work in us, that we would be sensitive through the times and the ways in which we are quenching your spirit's work in us. We ask that you would continue to grow us up and mature us in the faith. And throughout all of that, Father, we ask that our vision Would be focused in, that our attention would be drawn to that alien righteousness that we heard of a few minutes ago, to that true righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ alone. May that so define who we are. May that be our identity as Christians. May that be our hope, our joy. May it be so, Father, that others see the hope that is within us. And that they then ask us about that hope, and we have opportunities to bring forth the word of truth, to at least invite them in to hear the gospel. Bless us in all of those ways, Father. Bless us as we go up from here, as we begin a new week, a new work week. Ask God for your your blessing. We ask for your protection. Ask, Father, that you would use us as light and salt in your kingdom. Continue to lift up our loved ones that don't know you, family members or friends, maybe co-workers. We ask God that that according to your will, that you would draw them to yourself. Again, we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.